Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson, via the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America, 1776. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and as our usual disclaimer, this month's episode contains strong and sometimes derogatory language, as well as depictions of torture and murder that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Coming up on this month's episode, perhaps the most infamous crime in Wyoming's history, we return to 1998 and the murder that changed American society forever. Matt Shepard was blessed. He was born into an intact home with two loving parents. He shared his childhood with a brother, four years younger, who looked up to him in every way, and then in every way but one, when the younger brother grew taller than the elder. He enjoyed an upbringing of diverse and divergent interests, attending his shy brother's sporting events, while collecting deep personal friendships of his own. Matt was in some ways different than most others, internally thoughtful and emotional, and outwardly goofy and friendly. He saw much more of the world than just Wyoming, but he would never really leave, and he could be friends with anyone anywhere. At seven years old, Matthew and two of his friends took out a newspaper classified ad in Casper. The red quote, just opens the Oak Creek Lemonade Stand from noon to four each Sunday during the summer months. Five cents per glass. Support your small businessmen. As a sixth grader, Matthew and two other students in his school's journalism club wrote a letter to the editor that was published statewide, heralding an Adopt an Acre program. The idea was that Yellowstone National Park might be preserved and protected by the public through volunteerism. Even in those early years, most around him recognized in Matt that activist streak that sought to make the world a better and more peaceful place, even as he constantly navigated his place in it. Matthew Shepard was a good student throughout all of high school, maybe not a great one, but he appeared on the honor roll more often than not. But he described himself as sometimes lazy. 
But Matt was never listless. He may not have known where he wanted his life to go at all times, but he knew enough to make a choice when it presented itself to him. Few opportunities passed him by, and early on, Matt adopted a habit of keeping memories of these decisions. Journal entries, photographs of people he met along the way. He kept almost everything. Almost as though he possessed some inherent knowledge that keeping those memories would be more important to him in his time than it might be to others. As his high school career came to a close and having lived in Casper, Wyoming his entire life, in 1995, Matt's father was hired by an oil company and the family moved to Saudi Arabia. He used the opportunity to learn two foreign languages, and upon completing his high school courses in Switzerland, he returned to the States and to the West. He eventually landed in Denver, but being alone in a large and still fairly conservative city at that time, and still being away from home, or searching for a place that felt to him like home, led him back to where he'd started. Matt had great and terrible experiences around the world before beginning his first semester at the University of Wyoming in 1998, majoring in political science with a minor in language. Matthew Shepard woke up in Laramie on the morning of Tuesday, October 6, 1998, feeling more at home in Laramie than he ever had. The previous several years had been spent in places with people all over the world, but Matt was increasingly looking for that one place to call home, a place that would allow him to find himself. And having enrolled at his parents' alma mater, albeit begrudgingly, the University of Wyoming, and back relatively near his childhood home after a trip around the world, Matthew Shepard told people on that very day he died that he'd never felt safer. After classes that same evening, Matt attended a gay rights event in Laramie. But to call it a gay rights event, it was basically Matthew Shepard and a couple of friends eating dinner at a village inn. Surely on the informal agenda, though, would have been a discussion of the following weekend's National Coming Out Day. NCOD, as it's referred to today, is an annual LGBT Awareness Day observed on October 11th to support lesbian, gay, bisexual, and more recently, transgender people. After dinner, the 21-year-old Shepherd arrived alone at the Fireside Bar and Lounge in downtown Laramie, where he'd been several times before and recently. He ordered a few beers over a few hours and chatted with a bartender, and it was inside the fireside, during the course of a pitcher of beers, that Matthew met two other men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. They were roughly his age, had apparently never met Matt before, and so they knew little about him, except for one thing. Matthew Shepard left the fireside after midnight with McKinney and Henderson under the promise of a ride home. Matt was slight and short, almost a frail man. At five foot three, weighing 101 pounds, he didn't have a chance. The men drove for a short time, beating Shepard inside the truck, until they arrived at a secluded location. Matt struggled. He tried to make an escape into the night, but his assailants had little trouble recapturing him. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson tied Matthew Shepard to a buck fence with a clothesline about a mile outside of Laramie. His shoes were removed. McKinney brutally beat Shepard on the head with a butt of a three fifty seven Magnum pistol, dealing blows to his skull significant enough to crush his brain stem and remove a portion of his right ear. All the while, Matt pleaded with him to stop, but it was dark, and there was no one else around. Shepard was left for dead, tied spread eagle to that fence. McKinney and Henderson returned to Laramie immediately after, where they proceeded to get into a street fight with two other men, 
When police arrived in response to that fight, McKinney and Henderson fled, leaving behind Aaron McKinney's truck. In the back of the truck, police found Matthew Shepard's credit card, his shoes, and the blood-covered handgun. But at that moment, police had no way of knowing where Matthew Shepard was then. Eighteen hours after being beaten nearly to death and left tied to a fence, a mountain biker encountered what she initially thought was a scarecrow on Snowy Mountain View Road in Albany County. Remarkably, Matthew Shepard was still alive, if only technically. After first being taken to a hospital in Laramie, he was transferred to the Poudre Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, where Matt was in a coma and on life support. It took police only 24 hours to put the entire story together. McKinney and Henderson meeting Shepard at the bar, his robbery and abduction, his beating, and the men's girlfriend's involvement in eliminating some evidence after the fact. On October 8th, Russell Henderson was located hiding out in an apartment in Laramie and was arrested and charged with attempted first-degree murder. Both girlfriends were also arrested and charged as accessories after the fact. McKinney was also located and arrested the following day. He confessed almost immediately. At 12.53 a.m. on October 12th, having somehow survived his horrendous ordeal for 120 hours, Matthew Shepard finally gave way to his injuries and was pronounced dead, with his family at his side. Which is when the attempted first-degree murder charges against Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson became first-degree murder charges. Henderson pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. But Aaron McKinney opted for a jury trial, which prompted the state of Wyoming to seek the death penalty against him. McKinney's lawyers at trial attempted what was referred to in the press as a gay panic defense, which posited that McKinney had lost control of his actions to some extent after Shepard made a pass at him. The judge in the case refused to allow it, though, as the allegation that Shepard had made a pass at McKinney was never substantiated. Aaron McKinney was never able to articulate why he'd taken part in the torture and the murder of Matthew Shepard, saying only, quote, Being a very drunk homophobic, I flipped out and began to pistol whip the fag with my gun. End quote. Aaron McKinney was swiftly and relatively easily found guilty. He faced the death penalty for his crimes. At sentencing, Matthew Shepard's father stunned the courtroom by pleading with the judge to spare McKinney's life, in remarks that are among the most powerful I've ever heard. Were I allowed to share the audio of Matthew Shepard's father reading these words, I would. Instead, I'll read them to you. Matthew Shepard's father told the court and his son's killer, quote, My son Matthew did not look like a winner. After all, he was small for his age, weighing at the most 110 pounds, and standing only 5 foot 2 inches tall. He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 to the day he died. However, in his all-too-brief life, he proved he was a winner. My son, a gentle, caring soul, proved that he was as tough as, if not tougher, than anyone I've ever heard of or known. On October 12th, my firstborn son and my hero died 50 days before his 22nd birthday, with his mother and brother holding his hand. He actually died on the outskirts of Laramie. When you beat him, you left him out there by himself. But he wasn't alone. There was lifelong friends with him. First, he had the beautiful night sky, with the same stars and moon that we used to look at through the telescope. Then he had the daylight, and the sun to shine on him one more time. One more cool, wonderful autumn day in Wyoming. 
He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend there with him. He had God. I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Mr. McKinney, I am going to grant you life, as hard as that is for me to do, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, or the 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Mr. McKinney, I give you life in the memory of one who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. End quote. Immediately after being sentenced to life at the Wyoming State Prison for murdering Matthew Shepard, and despite a show of remorse during his own remarks during his sentencing hearing, Aaron McKinney returned to his cell, smiling and laughing, according to prison guards, giving autographs to other inmates while he watched himself on television. Reaction to the death of Matthew Shepard in 1998 was immediate, and it was nationwide. Let me also take a moment here to offer my prayers and my condolences to the family of Matthew Shepard, as well as to the community of Laramie, Wyoming, and the university. While it wouldn't be proper for me to comment on the specifics of this case, I do want to say again, crimes of hate and crimes of violence cannot be tolerated in our country. In our shock and grief, one thing must remain clear. Hate and prejudice are not American values. I hope that in the grief of this moment for Matthew Shepard's family and in the shared outrage across America, Americans will once again search their hearts and do what they can to reduce their own fear and anxiety and anger at people who are different. And I hope that Congress will pass the hate crimes legislation. Thank you. Candlelight vigils were held across the country. Local activists pointed to their own Matthew Shepherds in their own states. Cases of violence and murder motivated by homophobia. After Matthew Shepard's murder, a burgeoning gay rights movement in America in 1998 was immediately unified behind a common cause and a common name and mobilized in memory of Matthew Shepard. Faith communities across the country had a more varied response. The infamous founder of the anti-gay Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, Reverend Fred Phelps Sr., referred to Matthew Shepard's killers as men after his own heart, while the minister who eulogized Matt at his own funeral drew a comparison to Shepard's being tied spread eagle on that small section of fence to Jesus Christ's death hanging on the cross. Most church leaders across the country and their congregations fell somewhere in between. Matthew Shepard's funeral drew protesters and counter-protesters. Matthew's father gave brief remarks to the press, while unbeknownst to anyone watching, wearing a bulletproof vest. To this day, three decades later, some in Wyoming have difficulty coming to terms with what happened to Matthew Shepard. In 2014, a man named Stephen Jimenez wrote a book about the Matthew Shepard murder, pointing to a different motive, not homophobia, but drugs. Jimenez told the UK Guardian that he interviewed over 100 people for his book, which comes to the conclusion that Shepard was killed as a result of his being a crystal meth dealer in Laramie, which Jimenez claims Shepard became addicted to while living in Denver. 
The book also claimed that Matthew Shepard not only knew his killers previously, but had intimately been involved with one of them. The book drew strong reaction in Wyoming, most especially from those who personally knew and cared about Matt Shepard for obvious reasons. But these claims have had a lasting impact on this case from locals in Wyoming in retrospect now. Having heard these theories, some in the cowboy state still assume that Matthew Shepard's death was drug-related, or in some way drug-involved. But the claims of Matthew Shepard and his killers being involved previously, or being involved in dealing meth, had those claims had any truth, this fact surely would have been used by both defense teams in their clients' legal proceedings and most especially would have been raised by Aaron McKinney's lawyers during his trial or sentencing. But no such inferences were made by McKinney's defense. Aaron McKinney himself, in remarks to the court, pointed to his own homophobia as the motive. What stands out to me about the number of people to this day in Wyoming who still assume or believe or have heard that Matthew Shepard was mixed up in some sort of drug-related web that led to his death, what stands out to me is Matt's victimology and what that says about the rest of us. During any of the court proceedings or the investigation by police, there was never any evidence for Matthew Shepard's selling drugs. But let's just assume, for the sake of argument, assume for the moment that every one of the claims made in this book by Mr. Jimenez are true. So what? We prefer our murdered to be somehow morally less than the rest of society. It allows us to be more comfortable with the murder of a sex worker or a drug dealer or even a person outside of our own community because it allows us to care less. We might not say a drug dealer is more deserving of being executed, but we certainly mourn their loss less than a, quote, innocent victim. When a sex worker is found murdered on the side of a highway, it receives less national news coverage than when a home invasion murder from a fancy zip code takes place, for example. When a woman who is a member of a minority population is murdered by her husband, it receives less attention than the exact same crime committed against a member of a majority population. I'm often asked why these cases don't get more coverage or why they're solved less frequently. And the media and law enforcement get the blame for this quite a bit. But the real reason is us. Media in America is a mirror of the audience. Corporate-owned media companies produce, I think, the best quality journalism possible at times, but they are companies like any other company. They are beholden to financial interests. And so in the interest of increasing shareholder value, media companies cover the stories that get ratings and clicks and views. And who does the clicking and the reading and the watching? Well, that would be us, wouldn't it? You and me and 300 million other people determine collectively what the media cover, and even sometimes which cases receive police priority, by what we pay attention to, what we choose to care about. If somehow overnight a quarter even of the population woke up tomorrow and decided, you know what, I'm going to care most about missing and murdered indigenous women. Those are the cases I'm going to be most interested in and passionate about seeing solved. If that's where the attention suddenly started going and where the money suddenly started flowing, then almost immediately those cases would be as well covered as any other, and law enforcement agencies, the leaders of which are either elected themselves or appointed by elected officials, would even close more of those cases faster. Blame the media and blame police if you want, but they are servants of society. They are a symptom of our collective values. 
The conservative population in this country, among which I count myself, if you were wondering, is averse to change by nature. But change was coming in the wake of Matthew Shepard's murder. And as high schools and colleges resumed class in the fall of 1998, Shepard's death became an impetus for a renewed discussion, or in some places a brand new discussion, concerning prejudice and discrimination and how those issues might be addressed to students in the classroom. While Matt's picture appeared on the cover of Time magazine, vigils for tolerance and anti-hate sprang up all over Wyoming in places like Jackson and Laramie and Casper. However, not all public response to Matthew Shepard's murder was sympathetic. Homophobic reaction to Matthew Shepard, the news story, was acute, but it was more often obtuse. Letters to the editor in Wyoming newspapers across the state asked why so much national media coverage was being given to one gay man, and by extension, homosexuality in general. Others complained that far more violent crimes hadn't been given similar coverage. Shepard's victimology in the coverage following his death was brought to light in other ways, comparing, for example, the disappearance and murder of children not being given similar Story of the Year status. The Shepard legacy is also one of legislation. Hate crime legislation was already an established concept in the U.S. legal system well before Matthew Shepard was even born. But it might be said that his murder signaled the beginning of a new era in hate crime legislation, one which has continued for 25 years to the present day. In 2009, President Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which expanded existing federal hate crime law to apply to crimes that were motivated by a victim's actual or perceived gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. Perhaps even more notably, that law removed the requirement that an offense had to be federal in scope. No longer did the victim need to be involved in a federally protected activity for an offender to be federally charged. Hate crime legislation has always been and still is a contentious issue for many reasons. This complex issue can be simplified by asking this question. Is a violent crime different because of the reason it was committed? Or is a crime a crime? And it makes no difference from a legal or a punitive standpoint anyway. What was in the offender's mind when he or she was committing it? One of the arguments against federal hate crime legislation is that the states basically already have this covered. Some might say even more than covered. It's already illegal on the state level to commit violent crime against somebody else, so why do we need this extra added law? These laws, according to some, are redundant and overreaching because it's already illegal to kill someone for being black in Connecticut or kill someone for being German in Kansas or kill someone for being of a certain age in Minnesota or even to kill someone for being a firefighter in Massachusetts. If intent against any of these groups can be proven in court over the course of a violent crime, if that's why this person was killed, then those additional hate crime laws can already be applied at the state level. So some ask, why do we need a federal law? There are already state-level hate crime laws in every state. Except they're not applicable in every state. Most states do have separate hate crime laws on the books, and they have for decades. But there are three states that do not. And Wyoming is still one of them. But Matthew Shepard, the entity, Matthew Shepard, the cause, the rallying cry, even Matthew Shepard, the gay murder victim, is not what I've taken away from this story in researching it to bring to you. Because that's only a part of who Matt was. Many of his closest friends throughout his life didn't even know he was gay. And now the entire world knows. 
There's nothing I can say in this episode that can make Matthew Shepard anything more than what he'll forever be known as, a murdered gay man. And some would say he's changed the world from that, albeit in a way his friends and family never would have wanted him to. Murder victims, regardless of the motivation of the killer, are too often remembered first and foremost for the worst thing that ever happened to them. That last full imposition on their rights, that we've all agreed we all have in common. Their entire life, who they were as a person, what they meant to the people they knew, the people that liked them, the people that didn't, and the moments and the days and the milestones that they'll never get to experience are forgotten by most. And Matthew Shepard is a prime example of that. It's difficult to empathize with that kind of loss. Truth be told, it's hard for many of us to relate to victims of such crimes if they occur outside of our own community. If the murdered is so different or so distant from us, we might even live in the same place, the same city, the same state, the same country, and yet the reality of their tragedy might be too distant to grasp because they appear to have been in life so different from us. But they're not. No murder victim is that different than you or I. One thing every victim of wrong everywhere shares with you and with me is that they very easily could have been us and we them. Had you been born elsewhere, in somewhere else, in a different place, and maybe even in a different way, every one of us could have been Matthew Shepard. And there are ways in which we all sort of are. Smart, selfish, funny, different, insecure, outgoing. Matt was never an actor, and he was never famous for the reasons he wanted to be. And Matt was never a diplomat. He never impacted the country and the world through policy that he wanted to advance. None of that happened. He died when he was still just a kid. In some respects, a sad and uncomfortable figure. In others, a young man with limitless potential and offerings he was never allowed to give. Beyond the activism and the politics and the stereotypes and the hates, Matthew Shepard was a murder victim. Brutally killed by two people, not an entire state. He should be still impacting the world and society in whatever way he eventually was going to. And by the way, so too should the two people responsible for his death and now in prison. But none of that is what happened. And all that's left is loss and sadness. So take from this story something you can keep, whatever it might be. Something that will allow you to make a positive impact on those around you. And something you can teach others to help them do the same. Sources for this episode include the Casper Star Tribune, the Jackson Hole News, the Jackson Hole Guide, the Associated Press, reporting in the Fort Collins, Colorado by Eric Udell, and the award-winning documentary Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine. In the wake of Matt's death, the Matthew Shepard Foundation was formed by his parents and is still operating today. It exists to inspire individuals, organizations, and communities to embrace the dignity and equality of all people. You can learn more at MatthewShepard.org. That's Matthew S-H-E-P-A-R-D dot org. If you're looking for more Dead and Gone in Wyoming and you haven't done so already, there are exclusive Patreon-only episodes waiting for you at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks to all of you who continue to financially support the show and continue to make its production possible. And thank you all for listening. 
That's all the time we have for this month. For everyone at County10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol... Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.